Right, so I'm seeing 105 Eastern Standard Time on my clock. I'm going to go ahead and get started to respect everyone's time. Again, thank you for being here today. I truly appreciate um, y'all sitting in in today's session. <laughs> I'm very excited. All right, let's go ahead and. <clears throat> All right, and if you folks notice I'm looking down, it's just because I have notes, so I want to make that aware down here. Okay. All right, well, everyone, welcome to Prepare Yourself for Home Buying. Um, my name is Crystal Cedino, the Training and Development Manager for the Native Learning Center. Really thrilled that y'all can be here. I have a special guest speaker, Eric Sprinkle, who's from First Tribal Lending. I'll have him formally introduce himself momentarily. Um, but yes, I'm excited that all of you guys are here. I'm excited that we're here to learn about home buying especially uh, me being someone who is looking to purchase a home, trying to establish, um, you know, a headquarters home to speak. <laughs> um, but yeah, so let's go ahead and jump in. All right, um, so just as a reminder, please be sure to mute your microphones as soon as you come into the room. Um, I know it takes a moment, but go ahead and get that just to avoid any sort of um, feedback. But with that being said, um, the disclaimer here, we just wanted to mention that this training provides a summary of fundamental concepts, requirements, and or procedures within the allotted 120 minutes that this session is going on. And the materials discussed uh, does not necessarily illustrate all possible scenarios that could be applicable. So just please keep that in mind as we get through today's training. So some housekeeping before we get started. Um, I would like all of you to have your cell phones handy or just be prepared to click some links um, to you know, participate throughout the session. Um, but with that being said, uh, we are utilizing Microsoft Teams um, in today's session. And with that, there are two platforms, one for the desktop and one for the browser. Either is perfectly okay, just know that there are some differences in operating from either. So um, if you are utilizing the web browser, your functions will typically be at the bottom of your screen if you hover your mouse towards the lower part of your screen. And then from there, you're going to see icons like your camera, your microphone, the share um, option should be grayed out for all of you, but then you have three dots and the chat function as well. Um, and the three dots, I'll go into that momentarily, uh, but the chat function is something else we will be utilizing throughout today's session. I'm going to do a lot of uh, ones for yes, two for no, so please participate. Uh, these sessions are only as uh, helpful or, you know, um, good as long as participants are participating. So, yes, but uh, essentially you just have, again, camera and microphone access. If you do have questions and I do open up the floor, which I do from time to time, please be sure to, you know, if you want, uh, unmute those microphones and interact with us. We're here to help. Um, what else do we have here? So if you are viewing today's session through the desktop browser, all of your functions are going to be up top. Same items should be available to you. You'll see a red um, 
button as if you're going to be hanging up the phone. That's to actually leave the session. So uh, avoid hitting that on accident because <laughs> it's definitely happened from time to time. Um, but with that, again, camera, microphone, and all of those great features. The three dots um, that I mentioned earlier are just to adjust your audio settings as long uh, as well as your visual settings. So uh, feel free to play along with those. You can add virtual backgrounds. You can turn on closed captionings. There's tons of options there. Feel free to kind of play around. And then there's also, or there should be, an option to essentially um, utilize like thumbs up and smiley faces, the emoticons. So feel free to utilize those throughout the session as well. Okay, so a little bit about me. As I said, I am uh, Crystal Cedino, the Training Development Manager at the Native Learning Center. Um, I started off at the Native Learning Center in 2017, and I spent prior to that six years in customer service for various retail stores. Um, and I essentially moved on from there and joined the NLC family, as we like to say, because we are a very tight knit group. And with that, I became certified in building native communities, financial skills for families, the train a trainer course through Oyster Corporation. At the time, they were actually called, um, oh, I can't remember. Oh, of course, the brain fart. But with that, yes, they're now known as Oyster Corporation. Uh, they're a great organization. They provide other classes and, and so on to um, Further educate yourself on financial literacy, wellness, coaching, and so on and so forth. So definitely take a look at them. They're one of our great partners. And with that, there's also just, I've researched, I've looked things up. I've wanted to always better my finances. I grew up in a fairly, not fairly, I grew up in a very poor um, family background, financial situation, and it shaped who I am. And, you know, we learn and we live and I'm I'm thankful for it, honestly. Um, it's made me who I am today. But uh, just some other fun things about myself. Uh, love Kate Spade, I have my own podcast. I put way too much sugar in my coffee and I would love to adopt a dog one day, hopefully a French Bulldog or an English Bulldog. Um, but yeah, so that's me. I'm gonna go ahead and let Eric introduce himself and his background and so on and so forth. So take it over, Eric. Hello, everybody. Um, hopefully my camera continues to work. I don't know for whatever reason it comes in and out, so I apologize for that. Um, but thanks, Crystal, for having me on this call here. Um, so I work for First Tribal Lending. I have been doing Native American lending mortgages for the last 25 years. Um, we help tribal members anywhere from the West Coast uh, to the East Coast and really anywhere in between. Um, we also help Native Hawaiians. Um, uh, as well under the 184A program. Uh, within our first tribal lending group, um, we also have processors, we have closers um, that truly do just the 184 program for us um, nationwide. So um, I this this is near and dear to my heart what we're going to be talking about. It's it's literally what I do day in and day out. Um, and I, I've said this for many years. I, I wake up every day to to try to help Native Americans um, have that that homeownership dream come true. Um, it may not be right this moment, but if we can at least get you down that path, uh, we'll get you to the finish line. So I look forward to today and um, learning more, maybe even with some of the stuff that Crystal has. So um, look forward to it. So thanks, Crystal, for having me.
Absolutely. I just appreciate you being here and taking the time to do this. So definitely. Okay. All right. So let's go ahead and jump into our course description and objectives. So essentially, you know, what we're going to be discussing here is, you know, that whole conversation of have you ever wanted to purchase a home? Have you had any kind of clue as to where to start? And most of the time we don't. Um, a lot of people tend to find this process daunting and that's completely understandable because I am still on my journey to becoming a homeowner and um, it's it's overwhelming or at least it can certainly you know seem so uh, at certain times. Um, but with that, you know what we're here to do is hopefully clear up the process and make it more understandable, something that you can you know, grasp and potentially, I know we have individuals sitting in this session today that um, work with tribal members or they have clients um, within Indian country that they are trying to service and maybe you're just trying to find another way to kind of teach this and that's totally okay. Uh, feel free to utilize our material. I really have no issue with that. Um, but uh, always give credit to where credit is due. <laughs> but with that, just some of the things that we are going to be covering today are, you know, the importance of healthy spending habits, financial wellness concepts like debt to income and affordability, uh, necessary actors to the mortgage and closing process, and then the review of typical timelines for purchasing a home. I'm excited to really dive into a lot of the details or things that I've always wondered in this. So. Uh, I hope you can feel the heart that uh, I put into creating today's presentation and the hard work that Eric and I uh, have put in as well. So uh, with that, yeah, let's go ahead and jump in. So what I would like our um, audience to do is to go ahead and jump onto Menti. I'm going to go ahead and share that in just a moment. I'll go ahead and explain what I want you to do. Um, but and I'm sorry that says Jamboard, but with that, um, I just want to get to know our audience just a little bit better. So if you guys could please tell us maybe the state that you're in, your favorite song, your favorite show or movie or something. Um, and then there's another slide where uh, I, there's, I want you to answer something that you want to be able to take away from this training. So with that, I'm going to stop doing this and then I'm going to go ahead and share my mentee. So if you go to www.menti.com and use the code 38317427, you should be able to get on there. And I know Lewis is in the room. If Lewis, you could plug that into the chat, I would appreciate it. All right, energetic, enthusiastic. I love it. And I think you actually get three responses. You're allowed to enter something three times. So if you feel like throwing in another one, by all means. Anyone else? Oh, there we go. Listener, dedicated, loyal. Find. Patient. Thank you, Lois. Determined, loving. 
And there's about 18, maybe if not more of you in the room. So please participate. Determined listener, love to read. Ooh, spontaneous, go-getter. Love to dance. All right. And what's cool about Menti here, folks, is that the words that are utilized more end up being put in the middle. So we have some loyal people in here, as well as energetic and patient, which is certainly needed in the home buying process. <laughs> some good ones here. Yeah. Okay. All right. So I'm going to go ahead and let's see. I'm going to end this. Uh, I'm freezing up. Hold on. Okay. Go back. Thank you, 15 of you that have participated. Okay. And now. <laughs> Thank you for your patience on that one. Um, one takeaway you would like to have in today's training. Obviously, we're, you know, we understand the title of the class, prepare yourself for home buying. But if there's anything um, that you'd like specifically to learn about, we'll see if we're hitting that target. So again, same thing. Planning for buying. Is it a good time to buy? That's a very good question. New information, resources, better understanding. Planning for buying. Resources. Where I stand. Okay, that's good. <clears throat> Native home ownership. All right. Creative ideas. Ooh. Housing market pros and cons. Okay. Great. Okay, so I'm going to go ahead and move on from this to actually jump in the material. But thank you all for participating. Yeah. Um, oh, not from the beginning. I could just do that. Okay. Okay. So let's jump into this, and Eric's going to throw in some, you know, information um, on, you know, uh, his side because he is a loan officer. Um. But with that, um, just something I wanted to open up the conversation and, and start really a conversation about where the market's actually currently sitting at as far as um, 
mortgage rates, um, interest rates, and so on and so forth. So we're probably wondering why this even matters. And I mean, if we've done any sort of research or we know any bit of information um, on home buying, we do tend to hear a lot of interest rates, interest rates, interest rates. Um, and it's, you know, it's just, that's what's out there. That's like the key thing that we got to keep out for. But in the long term, you're essentially having to pay more to the bank with the higher interest rate. And ideally, we'd like to keep money in our pocket versus outside of our pockets, or at least I do. Um, and we don't want to spend the rest of our lives, you know, paying off our mortgages. And I think, you know, that's part of what I'm trying to, you know, show you guys um, with this and how I guess ultimately it does affect um, your wallet. So here, what I have listed from Freddie Mac are the monthly average commitment rates and points on a 30 year fixed rate mortgage. Um, since 1971, obviously we're not, I'm not showing 1971, but I believe this is also conventional lending. So um, with that, we can just see one thing I wanted to point out was in 2017, the annual average was about 3.99, then we jumped to 2018, 4.54, then 3.94, then 3.11, and then in 2021, it was at a really low at 2.96. And um, Eric has provided me with an updated, um, um, with an updated um, rate based on um, 184, which is also based on, or more or less, and he can correct me if I'm wrong, but FHA, um, they're comparable. Um, with that, Eric, do you want to go ahead and add anything else here? Yeah, you, you know, the big thing, you guys, is, you know, obviously you probably heard that the feds have met. Um, they continue and have continued over the last couple months of raising their um, interest rate. Um, so two days ago, or actually what is, so yesterday they raised it 0.75 basis points. And when the feds raise their rate, that's basically the short-term financing that's taking place um, it doesn't necessarily correlate with your long-term mortgage rates uh, long-term mortgage rates really look at the 10-year treasury bill you know what's happening on that 10-year treasury bill is really going to impact long-term interest rates um, but um, last month when the treasury raised their rate it actually impacted long-term interest rates uh, we saw rates go up um, into those probably low to mid fives um, and it's just kind of gradually gone up from that um, as you can see from this chart you know the average right now on a 30-year fixed rate <clears throat> is around 5.84 percent so really what i've seen is anywhere from like 5.625 and i've seen them as high as six six and a quarter um, depending on the day again it's just going to be depending on what the market's doing throughout the day um, and, and that 10-year treasury bill is really impacting that. Um, so that's currently where rates are. Obviously, the impact of interest rates, and we'll talk more about this as we go, but you know, the impact that this has on everybody is the spending power. You know, when you looked at rates um, a year ago, when we were you know, in the, the mid-twos and threes, you had that ability to maybe purchase a you know, a higher dollar amount or maybe a larger home based on that price. And now the impact is with these rates going up as high as they are, it's a, pretty much stopping you from, in, in some cases, being able to buy that, that higher priced house, um, maybe that larger home. 
Um, but at the same time, we're probably going to see these house prices come down because this is going to be impacting everybody, not just um, the sellers. So anyway, that's that's kind of what I have on the rates right now, Crystal. Thank you. Oh, and I just lost my. There we go. <laughs> I lost my screen. Um, no, so something else I wanted to mention here. Um, those because Eric and I were in conversation yesterday talking about all of this. You know, obviously we had the presentation today, and um, you know, we were just talking about how currently it, it's always going to vary too based on your financial situation and the lenders and so on and so forth. So definitely keep that in mind. And anytime that you are going online to look at rates like bankrate.com, um, keep in mind that they're probably showing you the best rate that's out there. And with that comes having perfect credit, having low debt to income, having all of these factors involved. And most of the time, let's be realistic, we're not all sitting in those situations. Everyone's financial situation is totally different, um, especially like, for example, mine. So compared to anyone else that's in this session today. So definitely keep that in mind as you go online and look at these rates and looking at these lenders and so on and so forth. Yeah, that's, um, a, good, that's a good point, Crystal, because honestly, when you're looking at interest rates and you're, you're shopping around, I mean, what the lenders will show you is probably their best rate available. That's really going to be dictated based on the individual, you know, how your credit looks. Because um, when it comes to the interest rate and locking in a rate, it's they're going to look at your actual credit score. Um, they're going to look at how much you're you're borrowing, you know, your loan to value. That plays a part as well um, it, when it comes to to your interest rates. So, yep, good points there. Thanks. All right, so let's just talk about some of the factors affecting, you know, the market currently, or at least, you know, from what I've seen, from what I've heard, discussions I've had, so on and so forth, and research as well. So um, inflation, I mean, let's take a look at gas prices, cost of living, the economy just in general, things are kind of astronomical, we're having issues getting baby formula into, you know what I mean, the United States, um, just all of these factors ultimately do impact, um, you know, these numbers and, and what is out there. And then, you know, at least in the state of Florida and from what I've seen as far as low inventory goes, right now it's a seller's market. And right now, from what I've seen, the prices of houses down in South Florida are astronomical. And with that rent as well, so it's not only isn't just one side of it, it's both. And we're going to talk about renting in just a moment. But, you know, with low inventory, um, from what I've seen at least, we're also having to deal with an influx of international and local investors. So, for example, I've had friends that have been looking for homes, and as they're looking for homes, what's happening is these houses are getting bought out by investors, and then these houses are sitting vacant. So there's no one living in the home and they'll leave it that way for months at a time. And in my eyes, you know, I'm dealing with my friends who are trying to build a home. They're trying to build a family and it's an issue, especially in South Florida. I'm not sure if it's, you know, similar in, in other states. If anyone wants to share, by all means, go ahead. But I do see that being a major problem down here. And for those that aren't aware, the Native Learning Center is located in Hollywood, Florida. Um, 
but yes, it's it's just it's a crazy market right now. And I think, you know, a lot of that as far as low inventory goes has a lot to do in South Florida with those investors trying to purchase that properties from under out. And a lot of time, these are the people who have the money to do that. And I mean, I'm dealing with friends who can't outbid, you know, these these individuals on what, you know, they end up offering uh, to the uh, seller. Eric, I don't know if you want to add anything to that. Nope, you're you're hitting it all on the head there. I mean, it, it's across the U.S., you guys. Um, the the inventory is not where it used to be, um, and and part of the reason for that is because where rates were so low, um, people were able to take advantage of you know either selling their house because they were able to sell it for more than what they ever imagined they could sell it for, um, and, and then now that the issue is if they go to sell, they don't have anywhere to go. They're kind of stuck. Um, and you're right. The other thing that we are seeing is um, the borrowers that apply with us, they're out there shopping, but they're finding that a lot of these houses are being taken um, or being sold to investors. And like Crystal said, these investors are holding on to them. They're going to maybe put a little money into them if they need to, um, but they'll sit on them because they have the funds to do that and then try to resell them at a higher amount, um, which is losing out for these individuals that truly need a home um and and honestly i don't think any of us have been in a market like this um it's it's a crazy times um i don't know you know if this inventory is is going to pick up anytime soon you know when you talk about builders um the builders are struggling right now as well you know um they're they're sitting back maybe holding back from building um that many more homes in a development because of cost materials um those are going up and now with rates going up, people are backing out of wanting to buy a new house. So some of these contractors are saying, I'm not going to build any more homes at this point because of all these different issues that are coming up around us. So, yeah, there's a there's a lot of things going on in this market right now that I think is just putting stress on everybody. Definitely. And it's a little disheartening, but you know what? Um... Like I said, Eric and I were talking yesterday, and one thing that he mentioned was patience, to have patience, and I, I couldn't have agreed more. And we'll get more on that, but don't lose faith. I think it is still possible. I think we just have to be even more prepared now for what is happening in our economy currently. All yeah, right. Uh, this is a great time to, to kind of go through all this and let's, you know, get prepared for you know, and be ready to to take on that that purchase when the time's right. Definitely. All right. So, I don't know about most of you, but I am an expert renter. <laughs> so I wanted to kind of talk about the differences between renting and um, buying. And I have, I feel like a great example of this, and it blew my mind when I was calculating all of this, but. You know, when we're renting, you know, most of the time, if you're not so familiar with it, that's totally okay. And again, I'll go through this. But when we are renting, usually we're having to deal with things like first, last, security, and then moving costs. And of course, when we move into a home, we're having to deal with moving costs as well. But um, as far as renting goes, when you're talking about first, last, um, and security, it's essentially to ensure the landlords have at least two months rent paid uh, should a tenant decide that, you know, they're no longer going to live there. It's it's supposed to be there to keep the owner of the property safe, essentially. Um, 
And so with that, um, let's go ahead and ask the crowd who here has been a renter. One for yes and two for no. I'm going to look at my cell phone to see responses because I can. One for yes, two for no. Who's been a renter? One, 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 one. Oh, yeah, OK, so majority. And so then one for yes, two for no. Who here has moved more than twice in their lifetime? One for yes, two for no. Who here has moved more than twice in their lifetime? And I'll, I'll explain why I'm asking this in a moment. Okay, all right, so I'm going to go ahead and share my my history as far as moving goes and, and hopefully this helps, but um, typically, you know, anytime I've moved, I've used actually income tax to assist me um, any sort of return that I've received to, um, you know, get through the entire process. And with that, I remember the first time I moved out completely on my own. I was totally alone. I had no help. And I was absolutely terrified because I've heard horror stories about first last security and how expensive it could cost and so on and so forth. And when you're going through the process, you're like, okay, yeah, no, I just need a home. So I'll do whatever, you know, I need to in order to get there. Um, but in my scenario, my rent down here was 1050 a month. Okay. Which thankfully included water and my electric bill was separate, which was an additional, you know, $50 a month. And um, that was because I unplugged absolutely everything in my apartment. I had everything to power strips. And every time I left the house, I unplugged the power strip. I kid you not. This was my lifestyle because I was living, as we say, balling on a budget. Um, so with that, um, you know, I'm telling you, I did things where I cranked up the AC and all that to keep things low and so on and so forth. So when I moved out, you know, I was required to pay first month's rent. So you've got that 1050. Then I had to pay last month's rent, which was another 1050. And so now we're sitting at $2,100. And then I had to pay a security deposit, which was another 1050. So now we're sitting at $3,150. That's a nice chunk of change, right? So then I had to come up with all that on my own. And thankfully, like I said, I had income tax to, you know, help, um, you know, get that done. But I realized like, holy smokes, moving like for renters is just absolutely insane and incredibly expensive. So I think about how that 3000 could have easily gone towards savings for a down payment um, on a home. And then let's not forget that you've paid first and last, you've got 10 more months to pay. So your regular monthly, you know, rent. That was $10,500, guys. So a total of $13,650 went to just renting alone. That is easily something I could have used towards a down payment on a home. I, I just, when I calculated that, I was like, oh my God, that is insane. And, you know, let's, you know, that doesn't, that number is just the amount of money that I used within one year period, just one year, because I lived completely on my own one year. And then I ended up getting a roommate to kind of offset those costs because I've been on a journey to purchase a home. But my point here um, is that that's a lot of money for renting. And if we're, you know, depending on your situation, I could have stayed with family and then 
and looking at looking back at it now, I probably should have done that and I should have budgeted myself to save all of those finances so that I could eventually purchase a home. But you live and you learn and that's totally OK. Um, but now I see, you know what I mean? The bigger picture and I realize, wow, this is insane. Um, but yeah, um, that's just, you know, just a story I wanted to share with you guys and thinking about the difference between renting and buying. So now I'm going to pass this off to Eric so he can go ahead and talk about buying. All right. Well, one thing I want to go back to, because you, you kind of talked a little bit about that rent and maybe living with family. <clears throat> you know, the one thing that we see on the mortgage side is many, many times when somebody's applying um, where they've currently lived, because we have to look at where you've lived for the last two years, um, and we've got to document that. So in a lot of cases, I would say, I mean, it's a high, probably over half, you know, that we see on, on a weekly, monthly basis that when somebody applies, they've been, they've been living with family um, for the last, whatever, six months, year, maybe two years for that matter. And the big thing around that is being able to save while you're living with family. You know, if you don't or can't show that you've been writing a check for rent, you know, back to a family member um, and us being able to document that, the big thing then is just you being able to show that you've been saving funds. Because at some point in time, I'm guessing you're going to want to move out of living with your family and be able to do your own home ownership. So those are one of the big keys is, you know, start saving that money. If you're living with family, take advantage of of being able to maybe put that money away. Let's say it's, you know, even if it's 12 to 1500 or, or whatever the case is, you know, the more the merrier. Because in the end, you know, whether that's six months from now or a year from now, you know, like <clears throat> Crystal said, when you add all that up, I mean, you could potentially have $10,000 of your own money saved up just in, in, let's say, 10 months if you just put 1000 away. So it's it's very crucial because one thing that programs, mortgage programs will look at is payment shock. So if you're living rent free and now all of a sudden you're going to apply it and take on a mortgage, let's say it's, you know, a thousand dollars, you're going from nothing to now having to make a thousand dollar mortgage payment. And if you look at your bank accounts and you don't have any money saved up, that's the part where it begins to be a little bit more of a red flag for underwriting where they're saying, yeah, you know, we've got someone that has been living rent free, um, hasn't saved any money. It just shows that they're living paycheck to paycheck. Um, and now they're wanting to jump into a mortgage payment. So um, just keep that in mind as we go through this. You know, if you, if you know of individuals that are living with family, um, and I'm sure they're helping out with their families, you know, expenses as well, but try to take advantage of putting some money away, get that savings built up so that you do have those funds available when it comes time to put <clears throat> on this next slide, your down payment on a house. Um, because when it comes to financing, you're going to have a down payment in most cases. Um, and then on top of that, you're going to have your closing costs. You know, your closing costs are going to be your lender fees. It's going to be your title company fees or your attorney fees. Um, it'll be your recording fees with the uh, county. You also have your um, reserves, which is going to be basically you're going to have your first year's homeowner's insurance that you have to pay. Um, and then if you're going to be off the reservation, you're going to have property taxes. So you end up paying the property taxes on that house from the day you close to the next time they're due. 
So it really all adds up. And, you know, as far as, well, how much is that? It's going to be dictated based on your purchase price. <clears throat> so with the Native American program, you know, if you want to compare the differences, the HUD-184 program um, is their down payment is 2.25%. So you got a down payment of 2.25. If you go FHA, your down payment is going to be 3.5%. If you go conventional lending, you're gonna have a minimum down payment of 5%. Once you leave that 184, that Native American mortgage world, those um, down payments, um, especially with conventional lending, will be dictated based on credit scores. So back you know, earlier when we talked about credit scores, it's so important um, to pay attention to that and with those scores and, and also with your rates, because that's, that's gonna play a part when it comes time to apply. Um, but yes, in regards to your costs, um, you'll have your down payment, you'll have your closing costs, um, and then obviously your ongoing costs, you know, once you close on that loan, you'll have your mortgage payment, which in most cases, your mortgage payment's going to include your monthly property taxes, uh, your homeowner's insurance, and in most cases, you're gonna have that monthly PMI or that private mortgage insurance. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that too, but, you know, just comparing the differences of the mortgage programs, you know, with the Native American lending, HUD-184 program, your monthly PMI is, is much less than, let's say, FHA. Um, the other nice thing is that monthly PMI on the Native American program falls off after you have 22% of your own funds into that loan versus FHA, you'll always have that monthly PMI. Um, so just some really good things to, to know going into the home buying and, and kind of comparing the three, I would say, major or, or large mortgage um, um, loans that are out there um, for you guys to um, really think about. Now, the, the HOA fees under those ongoing costs, obviously, depending on the home that you purchase or that development that you move into, you know, those HOA fees will be in there. Those aren't um, included in your mortgage payment, but again, you're gonna have those as you move forward. Um, and then as we all know, owning a house, if you have, you're just, you're gonna have maintenance stuff. You know, you're gonna have things come up. Um, maybe you had, I don't know, the, the kids next door, they were all playing catch and they threw a baseball through the window or, you know, the, the door, your front door is not closing anymore, or your air conditioner broke down. I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff that comes along mm -hmm. with it. Um, and in a lot of cases, you know, living on the reservation, having the ability to, to reach out to housing, to have them come and assist um, is a great feature. Uh, but once you start now um, becoming your own homeowner, these are the things, you know, whether it's on or off the reservation, you might have to take on yourself. So. It's just one of those things, let's just continue to keep saving because you're always going to need some of that saving or that ability to tap into those funds for those unforeseen things. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay, so I have a funny video <laughs> to share with all of you. I'm going to go ahead and put it up. So I guess ultimately the real question is, based on what we've just learned, you know, with all those, you know, uh, costs that come later and then all the upfront costs 
is it really worth it? And I don't know if anyone's been familiar with this guy, but Adam ruins everything. I love his videos. I think they're hilarious and they're a very good way of really thinking about is home ownership meant for me? So with that, let me go ahead and open this up. And can we see this? Yes. Like it's coming through again, Crystal. Okay, cool. All right. All right, I'm going to go ahead and play. Uh oh. Uh oh. Hold on, guys. Sorry, I'm hearing that you guys can't hear the video. Give me one second. Oh, okay. And teams have to toggle and share and share with computer. One second. Okay. Ah, there we go. I figured it out. Okay, let's see if it plays now. Dare to be dazzled, ladies. <laughs> this house just came. <laughs> the energy in here, I can feel it. This is our home. Not for spaces, always in demand. 
This place is a great investment. Mm -hmm. No, it isn't. Crap. Competition. Oh, Lord. I'm sorry. Hi. Hello. Oh, hello. Are you looking? For a place to live, yes, but... Come to think of it, I probably shouldn't buy. And neither should you. Fact is, a lot of people who shop for homes would actually be better off renting. What are you talking about? I just got a promotion, and Jen's sound healing practice just got a customer. Yes, his name is Wilson. Right. Uh, buying a house is what you do. It's the American dream. Ah, yes. For almost a century, Americans have been taught that homeownership... All right, guys, sorry about that. It seems like it's just lagging really bad. Apologies. Point of the video is to really, um, yeah, there we go. Point of the video is to really emphasize the need essentially to figure out is home buying something that's really for me? pretty much. And I'm going to dive into that in just a second. My system is glitching so bad right now. One moment. Okay. Okay. All right. So with that, um, I just thought it was a funny video. If you have a moment to, um, yep, Lewis went ahead and he plugged it into the chat box. Awesome. Yeah, so no, it was just, you know, a point to, you know, point out that we really do need to think about, is this the right fit for me? So, I mean, essentially, how is it that we decide, you know, to do this moving forward? You know, we need to ask ourselves, What's my lifestyle? You know, how long do I plan to live there? What does my job security look like? Um, am I in, you know, essentially the right emotional state? Am I making an irrational decision? Because that does happen a lot of the time when we have extra funds sitting in the bank account. Um, but with that, we also need to look at the mortgage rates. We need to check what is happening with our current market. Um, and, you know, possibly say, what could the market look like in the next six months? You know, what do they say the market looks is potentially going to look like in the six months? Um, Eric, anything else to add here? Oh, sorry, guys. Can you make sure you're muted? There we go. There we go. Um, yeah, I mean, the the big thing is I, I've seen people where they, they kind of rush things um, in some cases where they, yeah, we got to get this, we got to get this house bought now, you know, rates are going to go up on us. Um, I just don't know. I mean, I wish we had that crystal ball, you know, to know where rates are going to go. Um, but you're right. I mean, those are some of the things that really make an impact or a, a huge decision on, you know, your financial 
situation between now and, and six months to a year from now, or even for the next 30 years for that matter. <clears throat> all right, so let's talk about some of our mortgage options, right? As I'm sure we're all wondering, what is a conventional, you know, offer as, you know, loan? What is an FHA loan offer as? What is uh, the HUD 184 on or off trust land? You know, refinancing, refinancing as debt reconstructing or restructuring, apologies, debt consolidation, new construction loans, single one step construction loans, offers, and two step closed construction loans, as well as agricultural loans. And Eric and I will share any and all information we possibly can about some of these things. Now, I am by no means an expert in any of these, but I do know enough to try and explain as best as possible. Um, so something before we jump into that, wanted to cover about looking for a lender here. So these are just some tips that I found on Nerd Wallet, and I have a resource page at the end of the presentation um, where you can, you know, go ahead and dive into finding out more information about this because there's the market right now as far as or the Internet is saturated with information and it's like, how do you know to trust it? How do you know what is good and so on and so forth? These are just some things that I've come across um, from people that I know that have purchased homes, that have looked through other things, been through the process and so on and so forth. But with that, um, let's talk about how to look for a lender. So mortgage lenders vary by the types of home loans they offer and the rates and fees that they charge. The best lender for one person might not be the best for someone else. And I think that's at the end of the day, what it's kind of all about, what works for you might not work for someone else. So just keep that in mind. Um, and before shopping for lenders, get your finances in order and learn about the different types of mortgages, which is what I hope to do here. And then compare lenders that offer the products and services you need. Um, so, for example, you might go to a bank and that bank might only offer one particular type of loan. Whereas if you go to a broker, they are probably going to offer different types of loans from different organ or not organizations, but lending institutions and so on and so forth. Anything on that one, Eric? Yeah, I mean, as a whole, I think the big thing here, you know, what we're trying to get across here is you as the individual applying, you've got to feel comfortable with who you're working with. Don't be afraid to ask questions. You know, how long have you been in the business? Um, what type of lending have you typically, you know, been lending to? Um, you know, and with the Native American community, um, you know, you can, you, you see lenders out there that are dabbling into this, um, you know, and, and you've got to trust that they understand what they're doing versus the ones that maybe have been in it for years, you know, and that's all they do um, day in and day out. So just these points right here that Crystal brings up, I think they're really good ones to, to ask, you know, while you're going through that process, because if you don't, they may lead you down a path that they really can't get you to crucial to, to ask those questions. Definitely. I think something else that's key here are, is actually getting your finances in shape. You know, good credit score, low debt to income, all of that is going to help you in the long term to be able to qualify for a good rate. So don't go into this thinking, oh, well, my finances are okay. You know, uh, try and make them as best as possible, you know, within your power and within reason, of course. We all know that we have bills and other things coming up and so on and so forth, but we want our financial picture to be just 
really good. You know, we want it to be crystal clear. We want to know where our money is going and we want to know how much we're spending and, and all that, you know, that's involved with that. Um, with something else on what kind of mortgage is right for you, making sure that essentially whatever, you know, lender that you go with, the terms and everything are something that you can be comfortable with. And then um, compare rates as well. Don't just take one, you know, rate uh, as kind of like the end all be all. Do your shopping. Look at what's going on. Look at, you know, what is happening in the market. Who's, you know, offering what and so on and so forth. Um, and then also just get pre-approved for a mortgage. I've heard this so many times in my research, get pre-approved, get pre-approved. And we'll go on uh, more about that a little later. But um, I think it's just so important so that you actually know what you can, you know, what the bank is actually going to um, allow you to spend and everything. Um, and then compare loan estimates from at least three lenders. So again, it's just kind of like doing a cost analysis essentially. Anything else? Yeah. And the big thing there is just, you know, when it comes to, and, and obviously I'm biased, I, I help tribal members throughout the U.S. So, you know, what frustrates me um, is hearing from tribal members saying, hey, I, I reached out to this other lender. I was in the process. Well, they're providing me, you know, whether it's a conventional loan or an FHA loan, and these lenders don't know about the 184 program. Um, where you can really take advantage of that lower down payment, that lower monthly private mortgage insurance premium, um, and then that monthly PMI coming off. Um, so that's the frustrating part because that's where you really got to ask those questions and understand what you're getting into um, ahead of time. All right, so let's jump into the types of loans. So we know that we're here to really talk about mortgages. And realistically, um, your housing authority, well, if you're a tribal member and, um, you know, you register with your tribe and so on and so forth, um, and you have a housing authority or you have a housing department or your TDHG, you should, in my eyes, take advantage of that program. Take advantage of those individuals who are there to help you, guide you to get housing. Um, and I understand that sometimes we don't want to live on res, that sometimes we want to live off res, which is totally understandable. No, you know, fault there or anything like that. I, I can't blame you, especially if you have certain needs or, you know, whatever it may be. But take advantage of that because they help you along with this process. At least I know that's how it happens here with our housing department at the Seminole Tribe of Florida. We have some great individuals in the housing uh department and um, I've heard wonderful success stories on how they've helped um, clients, their members, fix their credit, uh, repair their credit, um, walk them through the steps, you know, all of it. So definitely if you can take advantage of that. And then, um, you know, I, I mean, we, there's so much information out there that it's easy to get lost essentially. So, here, when we're talking about a mortgage, so a mortgage is a legal agreement by which a bank or other creditor lends money at interest in exchange for taking title of the debtor's property with the condition that the conveyance of title becomes void upon the payment of the debt. So essentially, or meaning the lender doesn't own your home anymore, you do. Um, you're making payments on it and then you lead into eventually becoming officially like that house is yours. Um, and we're going to dive into FHA and B, 
and other loans. But Eric, did you have anything here that you wanted to add? No, I mean, I think it pretty much explains and, and says it right there, you know, what a mortgage is. I mean, what we're talking about here essentially is at the end of the day, once you go to the closing table, you're going to be signing a mortgage. Um, and that's basically locking you into that, to that, that loan, um, whether it's a, a 15, 20 or 30 year mortgage. Um, so no, I mean, this really gives good information as to, you know, what an actual mortgage is. Now we have the different types um, and this isn't going to be the only one that we talk about, but um, Eric, if you could take the lead on FHA. Yeah, I mean, so FHA loan, um, it's uh, federal, it's FHA, Federal Housing Administration. Um, the difference with this one versus some of the other mortgage loans out there, um, the down payment on this one is three and a half percent. They are going to look at credit scores. Um, now, I will tell you that in most cases, if you have a credit score below 620, um, it's going to be very difficult to get an FHA loan. Um, so anything really below 620. Um, you will have an upfront, um, what they call guarantee fee, which is that 1.75% fee. Um, that fee can be financed into the loan. So it's not a cost that you actually have to pay out of pocket. Um, it can be financed in. Um, but the difference with this FHA loan is with that down payment, you'll have what's called that monthly PMI. So, <clears throat> you know, to give you an example, let's say your loan amount is 300,000. Your monthly PMI is going to be 0.85% of your loan amount. So your monthly PMI is going to come out to be $212 a month. So remember, you'll have your principal and interest on the loan. You'll have your monthly homeowner's insurance your monthly um, property taxes, but on top of that, you'll have that monthly PMI, which is 0.85% of your, of your loan amount. So it comes out to be, in this example, $212 a month. Um, so quite a bit on a monthly basis. And then also, the, the, I guess if you wanna look at a downside to that as well, that monthly PMI will stay on that loan for the life of it. So on your 30-year mortgage, you'll always be paying that unless you ever decide to, to refinance and get out of that loan. So that's that's your FHA loan. Thank you. And then we also have, which I'm sure we've all heard, VA loans. Um, so qualified US military members, active duty veterans, and eligible family members can apply for loans backed by the US Department of Veteran Affairs. VA loans come with lower interest rates and compared to other loan types and don't require a down payment. Borrowers, however, will need to pay a funding fee, but it can be rolled into your monthly loan cost. Um, and some service members might be exempt for paying this fee as well. So my brother, um, thank you for his service. <laughs> He's still alive and well, uh, but he definitely took advantage of the VA loan. So if that's something that you're interested in, I would definitely dive more into research on this because uh, the benefits are just uh, incredible. And like I said, my brother was be able to become a homeowner because of the VA loan. So that's what I have on that. Eric? One, yeah. yeah, one thing on that, Crystal, too, with VA, you know, if you are, um, you know, a veteran, um, and I, I highly recommend, you know, taking advantage of this program. Um, now, as a Native American, if you're on, you know, looking to do something on the reservation, you will have to go direct to VA. 
um, to get the financing. So just keep that in mind. Um, we wouldn't be able to do it um, in-house. You'd actually have to go to VA Direct um, to get that done, but highly recommended. There's no down payment on it. Um, and I, there's not even any monthly PMI on there as well. So it, it's a great program and obviously it has to fit the right person. You gotta qualify. Um, we have a question if by Lindsay, if you're if you are a native and a veteran, are you able to access both? What would be best? Yeah, so I mean, if you're a, a Native American um, and you're a veteran, absolutely, you can you can use the VA loan. If, I think that that's the question, Crystal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yep. Absolutely, you can use that. And and like I said, if if you're planning to do something on the reservation on trust land, you would just have to go direct to VA. That would be the only um, thing that would be required on trust land, just because of the land documents on the land itself. And I guess to answer like the second part of that, what would be best? I think it's gonna be dependent on you. And um, I mean, obviously in my eyes, the less amount of fees that we have to pay, the better. So if you're comparing, remember what we said, you're gonna to wanna to compare like at least three. So if you're comparing, you know, between three loans, look at, you know, or programs, look at um, which is going to serve you best in your financial situation. Cause again, it's all based on you and what works for you. Cause what might work for you might not work for someone else. So I would definitely compare and kind of do that pro con list sort of thing. All right, and now Eric, Ooh. I hope that answered your question, Lindsay. Um, Eric, your favorite. <laughs> right. <laughs> Go ahead, let it loose. <laughs> All right. Well, um, this is truly, you know, like I said earlier, I, I wake up every day to help Native Americans try to get into a home. Um, this Section 184 uh, program is basically existed back in 19 or started in existence back in 1992 due to the fact that prior to that as a Native American um, trying to get mortgage financing on trust land was, just wasn't there. Uh, most lenders would not finance anything on the reservation due to the land status. Um, there, there was no um, property taxes, nothing. The, the tribe owned that land. So mm -hmm. The 184 program came into existence to try to create um, another unique mortgage financing available. And with that, they had to work with tribes and, and work with HUD to develop uh, a home site lease um, and also make sure there's foreclosure and eviction procedures mm -hmm. in place in that instance that something were to happen with that mortgage. Um, so that's when this all came about. Um, so. The unique things about this program, um, you can use this program on or off the reservation. Um, so many states throughout the US are actually approved um, to utilize it on or off the reservation statewide. Um, there are some states that you just can't use the program in only because there's probably number one, um, no, no reservations in that state or a tribe has not reached out to HUD and opened up whether it's a county or, a, or the entire state um, to utilize the program. 
Um, for instance, in Nebraska, in Nebraska, there are specific counties that are approved, um, but the entire state's not opened up. Um, in the state of Florida, it, it's wide open. Um, the entire state's open to use, whether it's on or off the reservation. And the other thing is, as an enrolled tribal member, whether you're an enrolled tribal member in the it's somewhere in the state of Washington and you move to Florida, you can utilize the program. You don't have to be an enrolled tribal member in that specific state. Um, so lending in Indian country, you can use it on fee land, which is your um, tax taxable land. Um, you can use it on tribal trust land, your allotted land, uh, individual trust land, or in some states um, with some of the reservations, there's restricted fee land. So the program allows that to be done in any of those areas. Um, obviously, the, the only way this program works is by having these partners, which is HUD, um, us as lenders, the tribe, uh, tribal housing authorities, and the BIA. Um, and one other thing around this is um, not only can individual tribe, tribal member, utilize the program, but um, tribally designated housing authorities and tribes can use the program as well. So if there's, you know, something out there where they want to, you know, let's say build 10 to 15 homes for their tribal members and they want to rent them out um, and maybe down the road sell those back to those tribal members, you can do that under the 184 program. Um, it would just be a loan on each individual home to that tribe or tribal housing authority. Uh, with the 184 program, there's no income limits. That question comes up a lot. You know, what are your income limits for the program? There's no income limits. Um, there's no credit score um, requirement on the program. And I know that sounds crazy, but for credit purposes, um, we do not have to look at your credit score. It's based on your credit. Um, so we've got to look at your, um, you know, your late payments, your past due accounts, any open collections. So anything that's happened within the last 12 months, if you've got late payments out there, you've got open collections, past dues within that last 12 months, that may stop us from being able to move forward right now. We would just have to have you show that you've paid those off or you don't have any more lates um, moving forward in the next 12 months. Um, also with that, you've got a low monthly PMI so, you know, when I gave you that example on FHA, you know, when you're looking at a $300,000 purchase uh, or your loan amount and your monthly PMI is around $212 on FHA, that same amount with the Native American program comes out to be $62 a month. So it's a huge difference on a monthly basis. And remember that $62 a month will come off once you have 22% of your own funds into that loan. So it's not gonna be having to pay that for the rest of that 30 years. Whereas with FHA, you know, you're gonna have to have that down. Now the flip side with conventional lending, you know, in order to avoid that monthly PMI, you'd have to put at least 20% down. Um, so just some things to compare, you know, as you're going through this home buying process or helping somebody go through it, understanding those, those you know, big three or big four different types of mortgage programs that are out there. Um, the other nice thing about the 184 program is obviously the low down payment. Your down payment's only 2.25%. Um, when we say flexible underwriting 
it basically means that you have a live person reviewing that file. And I'm not going to tell you that every single, you know, file that comes through to an underwriter has been approved um, because they haven't. I mean, we've had some challenging ones that just didn't get approved right now, but we explained the situation. Underwriting gave us a guideline mm -hmm. up here. Let's work down this path, get them working on this, and let's let's look at it in another six months. So it might be a no right this moment, but it's not a no forever. We just got to get you down that right path. And the nice thing with that flexible underwriting is there may be a situation that comes up in your life that happened in the last two, three years that created some of the credit that happened in, um, showing on your credit. And if we can get that explained, we can document that, you know, having that live underwriter review that makes it so much easier. Yeah, I don't have to input a bunch of stuff into a computer system and, and hope the computer system spits it out as an approval. So lots of nice, you know, benefits of using that program. Who qualifies? Um, you have to be an enrolled tribal member of a federally recognized tribe. Um, we've had this come up where we've had descendants um, trying to apply for the program and our hands are tied. I mean, we just, we have to go off of what the program tells us. Um, and the program says that you have to be an enrolled member. Um, descendants do not count uh, when it comes to applying for this mortgage program. And then obviously, um, Alaska Natives, we help them. We've helped the tribal housing authorities, tribes. And what's not on here, but that we also help is the Native Hawaiians under the 184A program. Thank you. Um, Rachel has a question. She says, when you say no income limits, does that include no income minimum, so long as it's feasible for the buyer to be able to handle their expenses? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, that that question comes up a lot. Well, how much do I have to make, you know, to buy a house? Well, it really depends on what you have for debts, you know, and what your income is. So what we'll do is up front, we'll do a pre-qualification for you. So we'll pull credit. We'll make sure credit wise, everything looks good. And then from there, we can determine based on your income and your debts, how much you could afford by adding in a mortgage payment. Um, to that. So yeah, there's no minimum. You know, it just depends on whatever your minimum is. Does that income allow you to afford a mortgage payment right now? And, and we'll help you with that. We'll run numbers for you. Great. So just more on it, loan features and loan types. Yep. So the, the Native American program, HUD-184, um, their terms are a 30-year um, down to a 15-year. Um, you can make extra payments. Uh, you can pay the loan off early. You'll never be penalized. Um, it's a fixed rate mortgage. Um, I say that because, you know, I think early on we were showing you some um, what the average rates are right now. And I think there was like a 10-year arm in there. This mortgage program does not allow arm rates or arm loans. Um, it's a fixed rate. Once you lock in that rate and you close, that rate will never change on you. Um, the Native American program or the HUD-184 program does charge a one-time guarantee fee, just like FHA. However, with the HUD-184 program, they're only charging 1.5%. And again, that fee can be financed into your loan no matter what. It's not something you have to pay out of pocket. <clears throat> um, the 184 program is assumable. 
Uh, we haven't had a lot of those, um, but it is assumable, which means that me as a tribal member, if I'm utilizing that mortgage loan, I can you know, have it assumed over to, to my son who is now of age um, and wants to take over that mortgage. Um, it's basically a transfer of that currently where I'm paying and what I owe directly over to that person that's applying for that same program. Um, and again, I don't see a whole lot of those, but we do want to mention out there that the program is assumable. Um, no adjustable rate mortgages. We can't use it for commercial financing um, or commercial structures. Um, that has come up a lot too, where somebody wants to use it and maybe run a business out of it. Um, it program just doesn't allow it. It's, it's strictly used for single family housing. Um, and a couple things on that with the single family housing. Um, the program allows you to finance not only a single family home, but you can do a duplex. You can also finance a triplex and you can go up to a fourplex. Um, you just have to live in one of those. So if you're buying a duplex and you want to purchase both, you have to at least live in one of them. If you want to rent out the other one, you can do that. We just can't use that income that's in there because this has come up before too. Let's say you're buying a duplex or a triplex and there's already people living in the other um, homes there. We can't use that income to qualify you. You still have to qualify based on your current income, whether it's employment or capita income, dividend income, whatever that is. Some of the loan types. So the, the 184 program allows you to finance the purchase of an existing home, the remodel of, his, of an existing house. You know, maybe you currently own the house and you want to do some remodel to it. It allows you to do that. The minimum around the rehab would be $10,000. Um, it also allows you to purchase a house and do a remodel to it. So you could do a purchase plus rehab with this program. Um, and then obviously it allows you to do new construction, whether that's going to be a brand new manufactured home, brand new modular home, or a stick built home building that house from ground up. And then the last one is cash out. You know, in a lot of situations, people want to maybe do a refinance to consolidate debts, um, or they need to get some cash back out of the out of the home that they own. Um, the program allows you to do that. Um, I will say though, getting money back in your pocket, um, it only allows you to get up to 25,000 cash back. Um, so just one thing to keep in mind there. But again, the, this program is, is being able to be used on or off the reservation. So you can utilize it on either or. And where I was talking earlier about the frustrations is a lot of times these lenders, they don't know anything about this program. And I would tell you over the last 25 years, I still on a weekly basis, maybe I feel like every other day when somebody's um, a borrower brings me a purchase contract and I'm talking to their realtor, their realtor will say, I have never heard of this program before. Um, so the more the information we can get out about this program, the merrier. <clears throat> Great. Thank you. Okay. So Eric kind of touched on refinancing just a little bit. What I wanted to do here with these next few slides was just provide you the basics on what's available. Um, interesting enough, this is actually coming from the BIA, Bureau of Indian Affairs Mortgage Handbook. Um, I thought this information was incredibly useful and important, especially you know, as we're talking about um, 
financing our homes or you know obtaining mortgages and being part of uh, loan programs and and all of that and then it just kind of goes from there you know when we're thinking about mortgaging our home and there's also refinancing and then there's refinancing and debt restructuring and then there's consolidation so there's a lot involved here when it comes to this um eric did you want to add anything else about refinancing you know we're, we're still seeing a lot I mean, even with rates going up as they are um one of the couple things around refinancing you know we always ask the question what's the true reason for wanting to refinance um, in a lot of cases, I would tell you that if you can, if you're refinancing because you're just looking at what the rate is, if you can get your interest rate at least a percent lower than where you're at now, it's definitely worth running the numbers to see how much you're going to save over time. Because that interest, you know, the amount of interest you pay, you could, you know, save quite a bit by reducing your interest rate, even by a percentage. So that's kind of the you know, the, the marker is if you can get it at least a percent lower than where you're currently at. And then obviously, you know, there's other ways or reasons for refinancing, whether it's, you know, in some cases I've had individuals where they have, they got a divorce and in their divorce decree, it spelled out that they had to refinance and get the, the spouse off that, that mortgage. Um, and this allows you to do that. Um, and then in other cases, we've had people say, well, geez, I really could, you know, I need a new roof. I need new windows. I need new siding. I need, you know, new carpet, new countertops, whatever the case is, it allows you to refinance and, and get that bid from contractors. As long as the minimum is at least $10,000, you can refinance and do that rehab um, side of things. And then lastly, I think on some of these slides, you know, that debt restructuring, you know, it allows you to consolidate those debts. Um, we call that a cash out refinance. Um, the one thing on a debt restructuring or a cash out where you're you're paying off some other debt, debts or consolidating or where you're wanting to get cash back, the program says that for cash outs, your loan to value is 85%. So whatever that appraised value comes in at, we're allowed to finance you up to 85% of that. So that 85% is gonna have to cover maybe whatever your existing mortgage is right now. And then on top of that, whatever those other debts are that you wanna pay off. So that debt restructuring or those cash outs, you're limited to 85% loan to value. Um, debt consolidation. I think one thing here to make or be mindful of is it won't solve any of your financial problems on its own. Consolidating debt doesn't guarantee that you won't go back into debt. So keep that in mind. This is all about changed behavior, and I mentioned that a little later on. But um, there, from what I understand, there may be upfront costs. Some debt consolidation loans come with fees, and you may pay a higher rate. So, and keeping in mind that missing any payments will set you back even further. But um, some benefits, I think, are definitely it streamlines your finances. You could potentially expedite your payoff and you could lower your interest rate. It may reduce monthly payments and it can potentially improve your credit score. Anything else, Eric? No, I think I think we covered most everything on that, unless somebody else has some questions around, you know, the refinance right. piece. <clears throat> 
right. Um, new construction loans. Um, I mean, as far as this goes, you know, a traditional home is a, is a mortgage and on an existing home that typically lasts for 30 years at a fixed rate where the borrower makes principal and interest payments for the life of the loan. And there are circumstances where a longer than 30 year term may be proposed. It really just is, depends. Um, so, for example, the United States Department of Agriculture USDA loan is utilized. There may be a 40 year term, a 40 year term proposed. Um, terms less than 30 years are also possible, but remember that sometimes the lower that you go, the higher your interest rate is. Yeah, and I'm I'm guessing that some of this, like we talked about yesterday, Crystal, you know, from the BIA, I, I'm not sure on those 40 year terms, you know, what those requirements are, at, at least when it comes to the housing side of things. Um, those might be more on maybe agricultural loans as well on those 40 years. <clears throat> That's exactly what that is. Okay, but the big thing here, and this probably goes into the next slide as well, where it talks mm -hmm. about the single one-step or two-step. Um, with the HUD-184 Native American program, um, what it does is it allows you to do a single close construction loan. So it's going to be a permanent loan and a construction loan all in one closing. So when we close that loan today, you're going to have your permanent financing already in place, and you're also going to have that construction financing in place. And those dollars to build that house are now going to be in a construction account with us to pay out as the work gets done. Um, so that's what we call a single close construction loan. The big thing with that that you have to keep in mind is when you go down that path, you're going to start making a mortgage payment on something that probably isn't even there yet. So if we close your loan today, you know, construction begins, you may not be moving into that house for another three, four, five, six months in some cases. Um, but just keep that in mind. It's a single close construction loan. The big difference between this and you going to like one of these other screens that talks about the, um, the two-step construction loan. The difference between the single closed construction loan under the warranty four program and let's say you going to a bank and getting a construction loan is you're doing it all at one time. Whereas if you go get a construction loan, you're going to have to put at least a minimum of 20% down. And then once that house is built, then you've got to find permanent financing to pay off that construction loan. So that's the big difference between that, that single closed construction loan and that basically construction loan and then finding a permanent financing to pay off that construction loan. Um, with that single closed construction loan, your down payment is still only 2.25% of whatever that total cost is to build that, that home. But the one thing to keep in mind with this program is they will charge an upfront 10% contingency. <clears throat> and what that's for is if we close your loan today, during construction, if there's any unforeseen costs during construction, the program says if we have that 10% contingency built in, we can use those funds for any unforeseen costs during construction. When the house is 100% done, any unused portion of that contingency then, if you paid it at closing, you would get that portion back in your pocket. Um, but it is an amount that they do want to cover just for those unforeseens um, during construction. One other thing 
just to keep in mind is the program does protect both you, the, the homeowner, um, as well as the contractor and us, the lender. So whoever you choose to pick as the contractor, um, we have to do a background check on those contractors. Um, so what we have to do is anything over 25,000. So if your bid is over that 25,000, we'll have to have them complete an app with us. We have to pull credit on the owner of that company. And then we also have to verify that they have enough assets available um, to cover this project. Because when we close that loan, we're not giving that contractor any money up front. They're getting paid as the work gets done. Right. Going through, yeah, and you can, those agricultural yeah. loans, you can kind of talk about that. That's something I think with the BIA and USDA. Absolutely. So I thought this was quite incredible. Um, so just basically a USDA home loan is a zero down payment mortgage for eligible rural buyers. So USDA loans, uh, USDA loans are issued through the USDA loan program, also known as the USDA Rural Development Guaranteed Housing Loan Program by the United States Department of Agriculture. <laughs> so um, essentially in 2017, as part of its rural development program, the USDA helped some 127,000 families buy and upgrade their homes. Thought that was pretty incredible. And the program's designed to improve the economy and quality of life in rural America. And it offers low interest rates and no down payments. And you may be surprised to find just how accessible it is. So there are three USDA home loan programs, uh, loan guarantees. Um, so the USDA guarantees a mortgage issued by participating local lenders, similar to an FHA loan and a VA backed loan, allowing you to get low mortgage interest rates even without a down payment. And if you put little or no money down, you'll have to pay a mortgage. Uh, you will have to pay mortgage insurance premium. Um, and then there's the direct loan, as it says on the screen here, issued by the USDA. These mortgages are for low and very low income applicants. Income thresholds vary by region and with subsidies, interest rates can be as low as 1%. So it's quite uh, just amazing. And then home improvement loans and grants. These loans are outright financial awards, permit homeowners to repair or upgrade their homes. Packages can also combine a loan grant or providing up to 27,500 in assistance. So I thought this was quite incredible. Definitely, I would, um, if you're looking for more information on this, definitely visit the USDA website. I'm telling you, there's a lot of information there. I know sometimes this stuff can be overwhelming, um, but it's definitely worth looking into, especially if we're talking about our lower income um, clients or you know anything like that. I think essentially here, my point is the more resources, the better, especially when we're talking about Indian country. Take advantage of these programs and these things that are um, available to you. All right, um, so I wanna jump into starting a budget <laughs> because as we've mentioned, um, before we start looking for a home, we need to talk about our finances and big question, why, why is this important? Well, as we discussed earlier in today's economy, we're experiencing a large price gap between what houses were priced at before the pandemic and after. So essentially our debt to income and how we handle our current finances are going to be a gigantic, enormous deal. Uh, we want to make sure we're at a really good standing point before we really dive into this whole um, 
purchasing process essentially. So really what I want you to take away here is that preparation is key. All right, so I'm going to get through these slides. Um, with that, let's talk about creating a budget or a spending plan. Um, basically, a spending plan is just the same thing as a budget. It's kind of like tomato or tomato. You decide whichever word works for you. Um, but before we really dive into making a budget, let's go into what actually is involved. OK, so we're going to start up at the top with track. So essentially when um, I was certified with becoming a um, BNC trainer, that's what we call them, Building Native Communities Financial Skills for Families trainer. They teach the system off of this, and I thought it was incredible. It helped me understand the process a lot better than I had on my own. So with that, we've got track, assess, take action, and save. So if you've you know, ever wanted to um, go into creating your budget, this is definitely the way to go, I think. Um, essentially what we're going to do with tracking is you're going to track your income and your expenses and you're going to look at the money that comes into your household as well as the money that goes out. And when you're tracking your income and your expenses, you're much more aware of the flow of your money. Um, essentially, you're answering that question, where has all my money gone? I know I've definitely started off in a place with my finances where I was like one minute I was at Subway trying to buy a sandwich. And then the next I get a notification um, from my bank that's like, you overdrafted. And I go, what? I thought I had my money. And it was just from poor spending habits and not really keeping track of what or where my money is going. Um, then next on the system, we've got assess. So essentially, you're just evaluating or estimating the nature, ability, or quality of your expenses. So you're looking at whether they're fixed or flexible, if they're luxury, is this a need or a want, and you're really just assessing what is happening in that bank account of yours or what's happening with that cash of yours, um, depending on how you track your finances. Um, then we move on to take action. So essentially you've tracked everything, you've assessed everything, you've looked through all your bank statements and you've made note of what's coming in, what's going out and what is a luxury sense, what is um, you know, a fixed expense, so on and so forth. And from here, you're making steps to make changes. So if you notice, for example, that you're spending more money on eating out or anything along those lines, you're taking the proper steps to be like, you know what, maybe I'm only going to eat out once a month versus four or five times a month, you know, anything along those lines. Then we jump right into save, which is so critical right now with how the market is and trying to purchase a home. And from here, you know, we figured out where we can reduce our monthly expenses and hopefully we've increased our cash flow. And with that increase of cash flow, perhaps we can put more money away so that we can afford that big, beautiful house or that quaint house, whatever um, you know you decide fits you know your needs. Um, there are ways to go about it, such as savings accounts, and you can do direct deposit from your paycheck. You can invest in a retirement account. There's multiple ways to save. You just have to figure out what works best for you. All right, then we're just going to dive a little bit deeper. So essentially tracking is just you're going to keep track of your salary, side jobs, tax refunds, per capita payments and child support. 
Um, and then in here, in this example specifically, what I have listed here is the amount of money that I have coming in and then my sister Cora has coming in. So let's say I'm bringing in $1,920 a month and Cora is bringing in $1,760 a month and then there's extra income of $250. So if we break it down even further, I'm basically a tribal preschool assistant making $12 an hour. Cora is a security guard making $11 an hour and Cora sells native artwork. So here are the total we're getting for all of this that we can keep track of because when we're talking about home buying, I remember Eric mentioning this in previous trainings since we don't work with him before. Um, if I think their dollar amounts are more than $500, $500 you have to be able to keep track of it. Um, is that correct? Yep, that's correct. Beautiful. <laughs> so yep. definitely want to keep track of all of those, ex uh, not expenses, sorry, all of that income that's coming into the house, okay? Um, but yeah, that's essentially what, what tracking is. And I have a, a budget spreadsheet that I personally created that I'll go through briefly um, and um, yeah, and, and show you guys that. All right, so assess your footing. So essentially, we're here again to value or estimate the nature, ability, or quality of our expenses. We're here to look at our fixed expenses and our flexible expenses. So basically, fixed expenses are going to be those monthly costs that don't change every month, such as rent, car payments, loan payments, insurance premiums. And then those flexible payments are going to be, you know, your groceries, your utilities, your gas, your ceremonial costs, all of, you know, those items. Um, we're just really, again, here to assess our finances. We're checking to see where our money's going. Uh, we, the, we work with, the Native Learning Center works with a subject matter expert, um, Shantae Moore, who is a certified financial advisor. She's absolutely amazing, a uh, plug for her. But uh, one key thing that I took away from her is that you should absolutely know where every single dollar is going when you're talking about your finances. Um, and when you're talking about budgeting, you should know that when you go to charge your card for $10, it's got to fit into a category. And the, at least this is, you know, what I've taken away and I found to be helpful for myself. Again, this is definitely not the end all be all, but I definitely think that when we are aware of where every single penny in our accounts or cash or whatever it may be is going, we make better financial decisions. So keep this in mind. Um, and then one other thing that's not listed here are luxury expenses. You know, we got to think about buying new cars when we have perfectly working ones. And I'll touch on this again a little bit later or relatively soon. Um, but keep the things that you have, especially when we're here in this class, we're talking about home buying. We don't want to start a new payment because we're frustrated because the market is is difficult at this current moment in time. And now you've completely changed your finances. Now you have a car loan that you didn't have before when your car was working perfectly fine and there were no issues or anything like that. Um, we'll touch on it later, but patience and make sure we're making smart financial decisions essentially. All right, um, take action like Nike, <laughs> just do it. Um, but this is the third step. Again, it's uh, it's just a matter of looking at where we've been, our habits up until this very point and assessing what needs to happen next. 
So realizing I want that TV or I want those, I don't know, roller skates. I want that, you know, particularly expensive item, but I need X, Y, and Z. You know, this is the ultimate goal. You know, I'm trying to buy a house, so let me not, um, maybe not make such unsound financial decisions is just really what I want you to take away here. Um, and Crystal, I will say, you know, we do see in a lot of cases too, where I think the, the car might be more important right now right. than the house, um, but yet they're applying, you know, for a mortgage. Um, it's one of those things where if the house is more important, that's, that's key and not, not maybe buying that, that Mercedes right now or that, that fancy Honda, you know, whatever, whatever that is, being able right. to just hold off from that until, until you get that house taken care of. <clears throat> definitely, definitely. All right, so save your fry bread is what I'm getting to. <laughs> um, so again, money, saving money is just money set aside as savings is just, it's important. It's important to your spending plan. It's important to be able to afford a home. Um, identify your goals and think about how much more money you could put towards saving each month if you're ready or if you already are saving. And um, you know, think about areas to plug your money into. So, for example, I mentioned, you know, investments accounts and so on and so forth. Just think about all the options that are there. You know, does, for example, a piggy bank work for you? Does a fishbowl work, you know, under your mattress? Does a bank work? You know, do what fits for you because there is no end all be all, but we do need to be smart about it. And I think we do need to make sure that we are actually able to keep track of it. Um, one other thing I want to mention here is think about it this way. Buy what you need, play with a little, and then save the rest. Don't go overboard. It's all about moderation and making sure that we're hitting, you know, those goals at the end of the day. All right. Um, all right, emergency savings fund. So with this, you know, essentially it's just an account set aside to put funds where in case anything happens, with here, I really want to mention the fact that when we're becoming home buyers, like Eric mentioned earlier, you're going to end up spending money on fixing things or, you know, maintaining things or whatever it may be. I think in this case, so that we don't stretch our budget all the way thin, you want to have accounts or savings accounts for rainy days. I have one that's called my rainy day fund. So, you know, life happens, cars break down, your water heater goes out or God forbid we lose our jobs or anything along those lines, a debilitating illness, anything, anything can happen in this crazy world. I think the important thing here is to just be prepared for it. That's really what I want you to take away from um, this slide or emergency savings in general. Okay, um, I'm just gonna briefly run through the Excel spreadsheet that I have here and let me know if you can see it. Are we able to see it? Yes, no, maybe. Not yet. Doesn't look like just yours. Oh. Okay, hold on. Now, 
<laughs> I see some yeses and then some noes. All right. Well, I'm hoping you can see this. It yeah. is a okay, yeah. per perfect. Okay, so this is just a very basic Excel spreadsheet. I've used this for myself. I've used it for friends. Um, you know, whatever seems to fit. Um, basically, the breakdown on this is in column A. Sorry, A, C, and E. You have the ability to plug in three bank accounts. So again, bank account one, two, and three, if that's, you know, if that's what you have going on, or if you have bank account one or two, or even if you just have one. But what I really want y'all to take away here is the ability to plug in everything that you are spending your money on. So this is part of that whole track. You're tracking, you know, your income. And I mean everything. So you look at your bank account, for example, and you're going to go and scroll on along the list. And I would do this monthly. Well, I, I would look at my finances weekly. Um, there are some people who do it daily. So it really just depends on your situation or what makes you, you know, feel comfortable. Um, but I do it weekly and on a weekly basis, I'm looking at everything that's coming in, everything that's going out. And the cool thing that I did with this sheet is that I um, allowed it to do the calculations itself. So if I put something in parentheses, it's taking away. If I just plug a number in, it's adding it to the chart. So you get to see, you know, what my cash flow or what the total is for uh, the week, the month, or however you decide to do it. Um, and then on the second tab, we're assessing. So same thing, you're going to plug in those items and then you're going to figure out, is this a fixed expense? Is this a flexible expense? Is this a luxury item? And then you ask yourself, can I reduce, you know, um, spending in this area? And, you know, you decide whether or not. Um, and then you can do the same thing. You can just basically copy paste these lines and decide what works for you. Okay, perfect. Um, but yeah, that's essentially what this sheet is. And then taking action. So again, your first column is going to have all those expenses. You've highlighted, you've categorized everything. And then from there, you're acknowledging, okay, I used to spend this much. What am I going to spend now? So for example, on this one, you're seeing Uber Eats one time, two time, and three time. That's crazy. But I mean, overall, what let's just average this 20, 40, 60 dollars. I know it's a bit more, but 60 bucks. I know that I could have gone grocery shopping and had food for like a good week and a half. I'm a single person, though. That's not the case for every everyone. So just for myself, that's something that would work. So we need to acknowledge our spending habits. We need to see what we're doing. And then from there, cut back, because if we are trying to purchase a home, this matters where we spend our money or where our money goes really does matter. And um, especially again in this market with interest rates and with housing costing more and then the availability, maybe not being there depending on your community, we need to be smarter with our finances. So I hope this was helpful. Um, I can definitely send this out to all of you um, after the training, um, but yeah. Any questions on that? Um, and I know this has been asked in the past and we're going to touch on this momentarily, but I will say when you are budgeting here, 
my recommendation is that you do it based off of um, net. And what's funny is Eric and I were talking about that yesterday because when you're buying a house, they're going off of gross. So it's like a weird kind of like balance of figuring out what to do with your finances so that we make sure we hit that DTI. Um, and we're making sure that, you know, our credit is solid. Um, but yes, anything else on that, Eric? Well, I think the only thing to take away on that as well is we have had underwriters request to have a borrower provide a budget, basically a budget breakdown like you provided there. Um, because in some of these cases we have where we're really high on a DTI and, you know, maybe they didn't have a whole lot of money saved up. They want to see, you know, put your budget together and show us what you truly have at the end of the month. So this actually comes into play um, quite a bit um, on the mortgage side. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. Again, computer glitching. Okay, can we see this? Yes. Oh. Okay, there we go. All right, so credit. Woo! We love this topic so much. We hear about it so often. Um, just something, you know, I'd like to discuss here. So remember that preparation is going to be key. We can't move forward without, uh, you know, talking about credit and our DTI and getting comfortable with our credit score and the amount of debt that we have. Um, nowadays, it's, um, I mean, aside, I know that with the 184 program, um, it's not credit driven, but if you do decide to look outside of that, they are going to take a deep dive look into this. So we wanna make sure that we are taking really good care of it anyway. Um, Crystal, Crystal yeah, one thing. It's not the warning for programs credit driven. It's not driven by your credit score. There we go. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Because we do get that a lot. People calling, hey, I, I didn't think credit had anything to do with this. I thought just being a Native American, we could, you know, get a loan. So just just want to bring that up. Thank you. <clears throat> All right. So again, I'm sure we've heard plenty of this, but three major credit reporting agencies, Experian, TransUnion, and Equifax. These are the three major credit bureaus, and these credit reporting agencies keep track of history of getting loans and making payments, and they also sign that magical three-digit number that tells potential lenders whether you're at risk for paying them back, and that number is your credit score. So a lower per credit score means it's going to be harder for you to get a loan or a credit card, and if you do get either, your interest rate will probably be pretty high if we're dealing with a poor credit score. Um, so it directly affects that um, interest, essentially. And a higher good credit score allows you to qualify for better loans and credit cards and lower interest rates with more favorable returns. So that's the key thing that I'd like for all of you to take away here. Um, remember that you, or if you didn't know, you do get one free report from each agency a year. And then you can also go to www.annualcreditreport.com to receive your free credit uh, report as well. Um, I definitely encourage all of you, if you haven't, to definitely take a look at it. Can I get a one for yes, two for no, if we are aware of our credit score? Put that into the chat. 
I love this. Awesome. Two. And that's okay if you haven't. No shame here. Safe, safe group, safe group. All right. So it seems majority has, or the, those who responded have, that's great. Um, if you haven't, that's totally okay. Maybe start, you know, taking those steps to look at your credit report. I think that's, you know, that takeaway there in that instance. Um, so let's talk about some of the factors that affect your credit score. Ooh, I got a question for a while. They were allowing inquiries more frequently. I think is it back to once a year now? Oh, because of COVID, um, I believe if I remember that correctly. Um, I am not entirely sure to be completely honest. I can find out though, Rachel, and I can let you know. Um, as far as I'm aware, it was just once a year. That's all I'm aware of too, is only once a year. Oh, Charmaine's <clears throat> mentioning, think it's still weekly. Oh, wow. That's incredible. Thank you, Charmaine. <laughs> all right. Um, so we know that our credit score is a powerful number that affects your daily life in ways, you know, you couldn't even imagine. Um, more businesses are starting to use your credit score. Rachel said just it's still weekly. Oh, thanks, Lindsay. Due to so much fraud, ID theft. Yeah, I can definitely see that being the case, Rachel. Um, but anyway, so most businesses are using, you know, your credit score to make decisions about you. And um, your score is used, again, to get interest rates on credit cards and loans and so on and so forth. So I want to make you aware of some of the common errors that um, are found such as duplicate information. Sometimes accounts will appear more than once on your credit report. And if that happens, take the proper steps to correct the error, which means contact the agency that has, um, or the bureau that has that information listed on your report and you can have it actually taken away, especially if it's not correct. Um, but what I would encourage to do is look throughout the entire report, look through all errors, and then um, contact the Bureau to you know, remedy that situation. Um, here on this graph, what I have is uh, just a breakdown essentially of the five factors that affect your credit score. So we've got payment history, which is 35%. So how well you've made payments and so on and so forth. Then at 30%, we have level of debt. What is your debt to income um, essentially? Um, and then, or your utilization basically. And then 15% is going to be the age of credit, how long you've had it. And then 10% is going to be the types of credit that you have. So is it revolving? Is it loans? Is it, you know, the variety that we've mentioned before? And then 10% credit inquiries. Um, so those, you know, mailers that you get, or if you're going to apply for loans and so on and so forth. Um, anything else you want to add here, Eric? Nope, nope, I think it's all. Beautiful. Right there. Beautiful. Okay, now I'm going to switch presentations. Okay, so what I want to touch on here um, are or just the idea of how to treat your credit cards. Um, and one thing that really came to mind uh, just from listening to my own family, my grandmother, and um, my research, I think I think what's important here is to understand that you need respect for credit cards and that you need purpose. 
Um, so with respect, I think it's important to understand the pros, understand the cons, understand the long term effects that it could have or they could have. And then um, Eric mentioned authorized users, which I thought was fantastic because you can actually have, let's say you want your child to establish credit, you can extend your credit, especially if it's good, and I think only if it's good, um, to your child, um, and you put them as an authorized user, and as long as they're making payments and they're doing really well with it, um, it could benefit you and them. Um, now with that, now there's also the reverse. If they're not making payments, it hurts you. Um, and I want to say it does hurt them as well. Is that correct, Eric? Yeah, absolutely. The other thing we see on these and obviously the pros and cons is, you know, co-signing, um, you know, having somebody else on that credit card with you where they're racking it up, but they're just not paying it. At, it's not even an authorized user. They're, they're actually an account holder with you. Um, we see that in like divorce cases, you know, where, you know, the individual wanted to apply with us has credit card issues, but part of it is because of the spouse racking up that credit. So things to keep in mind there is, you know, make sure you have a handle on the credit cards that you truly have applied for and who's on those cards with you and keep track of those. <clears throat> um, then on the purpose side, I think what's important here is to really understand that who, what, where, when, why, who is this card for? What's the purpose behind it? Where is it being utilized? When, you know, why is it being utilized? Just having reason for essentially having those cards. Is it for airline miles? Is it for emergencies? Is it um, to establish credit? You know, all of those things are fine, but I think we need to truly establish. Um, hold on. Sorry, guys. Um, glitches, glitches, glitches today. <laughs> okay. I hope this is better because I got a message saying that. Okay. Um, so moving forward, can we see the screen? Okay, perfect. Okay, sorry guys. Um, all right, so but just essentially here, I think it's important to just establish purpose with you know your cards and making you know um, and utilizing them essentially because we don't want to put ourselves in further debt. Is really what I'm getting at. Okay, so speaking about debt, what is debt? Um, essentially, debt's an amount of money borrowed by one party from another, and the most common forms of debt are loans, including mortgages, auto loans, and um, credit card debt. Um, I feel like there's always that question, how did I end up with all of this? I know I've definitely been on that boat, um, but just essentially, you know, debt is used by corporations and individuals as a method of making large purchases that they couldn't afford under normal circumstances. So you needed money or you needed the ability to buy something that you just did not have the cash for, and therefore you sought out either a loan or a credit card and, you know, you charged it. And that's just, I mean, that's as simple as it basically is. Now we dive into that whole, well, how can I get rid of it? So I'll dive into this further in just a moment, but you know, there's ways to pay it off if we are um, very adamant about it, essentially. 
Um, so we have to be or diligent should be the word. We have to be diligent about doing so. Um, here I have the, just the different types of credit cards. If you sat in in any of my financial wellness classes, you should know that we talk about this, um, but essentially just revolving credit, installment credit, non-installment. So again, the APR, the annual percentage rate is expressed as a percentage that represents the actual yearly cost of funds over the term of the loan. So that's what credit cards have and revolving credit cards tend to have higher APRs than installment credit because of the length of time in which you are borrowing the money. So normally with a, a revolving credit card, it's on a monthly basis. So let's say the company's like, oh, well, I'm going to give you $500 a month to spend, um, but you either have to um, make the minimum payment or pay it all out. It really just depends on the credit cards. It varies from credit card company to credit card company. I highly suggest doing your research before applying. Again, remember thinking about that who, what, where, when, why, why am I getting this? You know, again, is it for, do I get, you know, benefits like airline tickets, miles, gas cards, gift cards, grocery store cards, you know, all of that. Um, so definitely just do your research and really dive into that. Then with installment, um, especially you know this regarding you know the whole mortgage thing that we're talking about installment credit allows you to borrow a specific amount of money at one time for a defined purpose and you establish a payment plan with your lender to repay the loan on a regular basis over a period of time um i can't um with installment it's usually like a car payment like i said or a mortgage and these lenders are letting you borrow that large amount of money over a long period of time such as I mean, it really does depend on the loan, but uh, 15, 20, 30. Um, we've seen uh, earlier they're on the one of the first few slides, the 10 year arm. Again, depending on the loan program, um, that'll vary. Some don't offer that. So definitely do the research. Mm -hmm. Then we have uh, non installment. So, you know, some businesses and utility companies offer this type of credit and allows you to pay for a use service at a later date. Um, for example, you know, we're talking about like feed stores and um, yes, um, <laughs> we're talking about like feed stores, trading posts and small grocers where they basically allow you a certain credit and you pay it at a later date. Um, it's not so common anymore from my experience, but it does exist. So I wanted to make all of you aware of that. All right, now, what I will say here is we're going to dive into utilization versus DTI, level of debt, all of that fun stuff. So utilization ratio is the percentage of your total available credit divided by the amount currently being utilized. So for example, if you have a total credit limit on your available credit of 8,000, like this example says here, and you've used 4,000, you divide four into eight, and you're gonna get 0.5, you'll move that decimal point over two times, and you're gonna get a utilization ratio of 50%, which is quite high. We wanna be, I believe the standard is 30%. Um, and when we're talking about debt to income and utilization, or debt to income in particular, you're gonna have to include your home mortgage in that. And we'll dive into that in just a moment, um, but we want to make sure that we're sitting at a pretty good utilization ratio as we're moving through this kind of like financial picture and making sure that we're doing um, everything we can to set ourselves up for success. All right. Um, 
Again, why is GTI so important? So a lender assesses an applicant's capacity by calculating the relationship between the applicant's debt and income, and the loan officer will divide the applicant's total monthly debt by his or her total monthly income to come up with the DTI ratio. So to expedite things a little bit more, um, I think here allowable debt to income ratio depends on the type of lending institution as always. A generally acceptable debt to income ratio is 45%. Eric, I believe you told me yesterday with 184, it is 41%. Yep, it's 41%. And with compensating factors, it would go up to 43%. But 41% is pretty much the threshold. There you go. So um, with that, let's dive into the exercise so we're going to do this one all together eric and i adjusted the numbers to make it a little bit more practical but um and we're, we have two examples one with a single person and one with two so here we've got kelly earns four thousand one hundred and sixty six dollars a month she pays three hundred dollars a month on her student loan she pays her entire credit card bill each month and does not owe any money whatsoever and she pays five hundred dollars a month for her car payment and $900 a month to repay a tribal loan that she has. So let's calculate Kelly's debt to income ratio. So we hear right off the bat that she's got $4,166 a month coming in, right? Um, then we have 300 for her student loan, 500 for her car payment, 900 for her tribal loan. That should total out to 1,700. And then from there, what we're going to do next is take that 1700 and divide it into our 4166. And from there, I'll let y'all do the um, go ahead and plug it into the chat if you're quick with numbers. So 1700 divided by 4166, who gets what? I have the answer, but I'm testing you guys. <laughs> and Tasha wins with 40.8%. Um, normally we round up, but would you consider that, um, Eric, 40% or 41? 41. 41, okay, perfect. So Kelly sitting at a 41% debt to income ratio. So now with that being said, one thing that we have to consider here, remember, again, we have to, if Kelly's trying to purchase a home, for example, we have to include the mortgage. So there's no mortgage payment included in there. So based on Kelly's debt to income ratio, do you think a lender will feel comfortable making Kelly a loan? And I'll let Eric kind of, he did a calculation yesterday where, um, Eric, do you want to take that over? <laughs> yeah, I mean, so if you know what you're, your DTI is. So in this case, for the HUD-184 program, your debt to income ratio is 41%. So Kelly here in this example makes, you know, 41.66 a month. If you take that 41.66 times 41%, she can't have, well, her mortgage payment and any other debt can't exceed that basically 17.08 a month debt. So that, I mean, it just it just goes to show you how important um, keeping your your finances in tune, keeping those monthly payments down, because um, it doesn't really take you a long way. It's, you know, 
even with with a good income right there you know that's fifty thousand a year so it still doesn't really get you to that that next step of home ownership with the current debt that that kelly has in this situation definitely awesome um all right let's do another one really quick um so sherry and bob earns $8,333 a month together combined. She pays $200 a month on child support payments. She has no credit card debt, but has a $300 a month car payment. Bob does not have a car payment, but does have a $400, does have $400 in credit card debt. She, she uh, Sherry, also has a student loan payment of $150 per month. What is their, it shouldn't say hers, their debt to income ratio? So again, we've got 8,333. Then we've got 200, 300, 150, and 400. Yeah, I, thought that. I was like, wait. <laughs> um, so that should total out to 1,050. So I'm going to let you guys figure this one out. If we're trying to figure out. thirteen, Beautiful. So if we're doing this correctly, it's 1050 divided by 8,333. Um, so we should get 12.6 or 13%. So we typically um, round up. And then based on what Eric just mentioned, if we're taking her income and we're multiplying or their income and multiplying it by 24%. Be 41, so take, take 80, take 8,333 8, times 41%. So what that's saying oh, is sorry, that, yeah. yep, that's the most you could afford. So $3,416 they have $1,050 in debt. So that leaves you a difference of 2,000, what is it? $2,366, you know, for a mortgage payment. You may not want to spend that much on a mortgage payment, but that's the that's what's left or the difference um, above and beyond to, to be at that 41%. Are we good folks? Do we understand? Does that make sense? I get a yes or one for yes, two for no. Great. Okay, so let's talk about ways to lower our DTI. We're going to reduce monthly recurring debt by avoid taking on new debt. And we're going to pay off as much debt as possible as soon as possible. And if at all possible, increase our income possibly get an additional job if a raise is due maybe have that tough discussion but if this is an option i definitely encourage y'all to do so all right so one case study that i do want to uh, dive into and um, dave ramsey comes into mind when oops sorry Well, so I'm, 
initials LK. So they said yes. However, when working with clients, we should use net income to show them a closer to actual income. Correct. But remember that because when you are budgeting, you're obviously budgeting with the money that you do have in your accounts. And this was something that was mentioned earlier when we're um, when you're going to go apply or you're looking to buy a home, they are looking at um, gross. So that's where it's tricky. Eric, did you have anything you wanted to add on that? Well, yeah, and the big thing there is, you know, let's say we pre-qualify this individual today and it, it appears that based on income and debts, you know, they could afford a $300,000 house or $300,000 loan. Um, but um, if you're doing, you know, budgeting for them or they're working on their budget, yes, they are going to look at their net income. So even though we're saying up to 300000 they may not be comfortable with that based on, you know, their net income that they have coming in on a monthly basis. So it is a little tricky there. Um, but yeah, on the mortgage side, when you're applying for a mortgage, we will look at gross income. But when you're budgeting, you're looking at net income. So you, you know, as that potential homeowner have to understand that this is what I have to work under, even though my lender says I could potentially go this high, I don't want to go that high. Hope that was helpful. Yep. Um, all right, so again, the debt snowball case study, it's just a method in order to reduce our uh, the amount of debt that we have. Um, and basically, when we're utilizing this method, we're listing all of our debts from smallest to largest, and we're making minimum payments on all the debts except the smallest. Um, with that, you pay as much possible on your smallest debt, and you keep repeating this until you've basically eliminated all or most of it and you're at a better DTI. Um, so in this, for example, you'll see um, on the very top line in this image, M, do you go across so it shows that you've got 500, 625, 675, 1000, and 1200. Now, if you see in green, you're gonna pay 100 on that first one because it's the lowest and then the others Suppose that their minimum payments are $25. You would pay the $25 on each of those and um, pay more, obviously, on that lower. And as each month passes, one, two, three, four, you're paying it off much faster than you typically would. And then this process follows. And the other key thing here is that once you finish paying off one, one card, for example, then you're taking that money that you were utilizing to pay off that and you're adding it to the next one so that you move even faster. Um, I like this method, I've used it before, it's helped me. It really just depends on what you're comfortable with and what you prefer. Now, there's also the debt avalanche uh, case study. So with this, it's basically the same concept except you're listing your debts from largest interest rate to smallest interest rate and you're making minimum payments on all your lower interest rates except the largest. And you pay off as much as possible on your largest interest rates. So um, I think I have a better, well, no, this is fine. Um, with this, you've got your car loan, car loan one, two, um, and then you've got credit card one and two. So, for example, 5,000 5, remaining on 12,000 um, 60-month loan at 5.6. Um, it tells you your payments. And then same thing, 6,048 months, 4.99. 
Then your credit card, 6,800 with 19.99% minimum payment of 136. Credit card two, $800 balance at an interest rate of 3%. So we're tackling that 19.99 first um, to make sure that the bank isn't cashing in on all of our money. That's essentially what we're trying to prevent. Yes, it will, Danielle. You'll get this after the session ends. And I'm sorry, I'm trying to get through it as quickly as possible. Um, but yeah, so essentially you're just trying to um, pay off highest interest rate and then you move on from the next and the same process. You take those payments from the last one and you move them on to the next so that we uh, expedite the process essentially. All right, um, then here, uh, just one thing I wanted to make note of was um, the idea of paying more. So for example, on this one, you have a closing balance of $1,000. So if you were only to pay the credit card minimum payment, which is $25, it would take you five years and seven months to pay off a $1,000 credit card bill. And if we end up paying over, um, you end up paying, sorry, over $662 in interest charges during that time. So that's what I mean. We don't wanna pay more in interest, we wanna pay less in interest. So the sooner we can pay off our cards, or the debt that we have, the better off we are essentially. That's really the key thing that I wanna want y'all to take away here. So then in summary, it's all about behavior modification, change the behavior. Don't be late, make your payments on time, because I know that it can definitely take a huge knock at your credit score if you're making late payments. Um, Charmaine knows the exact amount of points that it can lower, but I think I remember in the past it can lower you up to like 60 points or something along those lines. Charmaine, you can correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Um, but it does, it hits you pretty hard. 50 to 80, thank you. So I was close, I was close, I was right in the middle. But 50 to 80, so that's insane. We don't want that. We don't need to make things harder on ourselves. Um, if you need assistance, seek debt management advice from professionals that you can know and trust and so on. Um, don't just pick Joe Schmo off the, off the street. Make sure that this person is someone that um, has experience, that's been in the field, that knows what they're doing essentially. Pay more than the minimum develop a budget and follow it and find more money if at all possible. All right, so with this, I wanted to just touch on the different types of homes here, um, apartments, condominiums, townhomes, modular homes, single family homes, multifamily homes, bungalow, co-op, patio home, and ranch home. So this chart here goes in depth as far as what you're looking at um, when you're looking into those types of homes. Um, this checklist here is to help you decide what is it that you actually need, okay? Really decide what is it that you're looking for when you're trying to purchase a home. That's essentially what I'm providing you with here. So just a quick deep dive on these types of homes, modular, manufactured, multifamily, single family home, condos, duplexes, and tiny homes. Um, the one thing, the one thing yeah. around that stuff is just you know, whatever you are choosing to look at, let's, and I, I use condos as an example, not every loan or mortgage program out there can finance condos. Um, they have to be FHA approved if you're using like an FHA loan, or even if you're using the HUD 184 program, um, it allows you to finance condos, but they have to be FHA approved. And there's actually, if you go to HUD.gov, 
um, under the search, you know, you can type in condo approval and they actually have a, um, a chart there that you can type in the city or the zip code or the county and it'll tell you what um, condos are FHA approved. So that's one thing to keep in mind is just be understanding that if, if that's something you're looking at wanting to finance, make sure that the mortgage program you're utilizing allows that. Because I think nothing hurts more than falling in love with a condo and being like, this is the one. And then you find out that your loan or your, you know, your, your the loan program that you decided to fall under doesn't support that. So um, I think that also goes into why we say get pre-qualified, right, Eric? Absolutely. Yep. So um, with this, again, I wanted just to provide y'all with information on the different types of homes. So just some pros and cons with a single family home. There's ten, there tends to be more privacy, more space, more exterior options. Um, some cons, sometimes they're higher in price. There's less um, income potential, just depending on the home. I will say that um, there's more responsibility as well. Um, you know, lawn care. Um, uh, bushes, all that kind of stuff. So just some things to think about when we're looking for homes. Um, and most of this information I received off of Bankrate actually, which is pretty awesome. Um, then modular manufactured and essentially with modular and manufactured, it's built offsite. So like in a factory basically, and then they bring it. Um, I think it's really just preference. There's, like I said, there's tons of information in this presentation about this. This is really just to provide you with the ability to make a more educated decision on what it is that you might be looking into. Um, anything you want to add on these two so far, Eric? Other than, you know, for financing purposes, in most cases, financing, um, if you're doing new construction, you can finance brand new modular or manufactured homes. Um, they just, as a manufactured home, it has to be brand new coming off a dealership. Um, you can't, can't buy a used manufactured home from somebody and move it on to your home site. Um, it has to be a brand new one. So that's, that's the only big key to, to keep in mind there. But you also can purchase an existing home on a property that might be a manufactured home. Um, we just have to make sure that you get an engineer certificate verifying that the foundation underneath that home um, meets the HUD standards for a permanent foundation. And we can go into that, you know, as, you know, depending on the situation for that individual and, and talk through, here's the company you can call. It's a national company that will find an engineer to come out and do that. But those are the, those are the big things on that, um, the modular and manufacturer. Thank you. All right, then multifamily, and it's quite interesting in my research and doing multifamily, a lot tends to fall under this. Um, so basically multifamily, while you rent out some or um, all of the single family home, multifamily homes have other distinct characteristics. Some started out as large single family homes that an owner or developer decided to divide into multiple units. Each unit in a multifamily home has its own address its own kitchen and bathrooms, and typically its own entrance. However, those living in multifamily homes may have less privacy and those living in single family homes because of uh, shared walls. So 
I'm pretty sure we're all familiar with, you know, townhomes, apartments, condos, duplexes, triplexes, student housing, you're sharing walls, you tend to hear noises and so on and so forth. Um, and I'll talk about this in just a moment, but inspections and so on and so forth. That's why all of that is so important when we are talking about home buying. Um, more information on multifamily homes, duplexes, triplexes, uh, condos, townhomes. So, you know, again, just more information here for you all to go through and um, take a look at. Uh, Not sure why this is here. Types of property available for home mortgages, tribal trust land, the HUD 184, individual allotted trust land, fee simple, which allows the um, HUD 184 conventional, basically all. And then with Hawaiian homelands, we've got the 184A. Um, I dive into here specifically what each is. Um, basically, Tribal trust land is owned by the United States and trust for a tribe, band, community, group, or pueblo of Indians subject to federal restrictions against alienation or encumbrance. This means the United States owns a property and has set aside tribal trust property for the exclusive use of the tribe. And there are processes that go into using particular lots of land. So like Eric's been mentioning, you want to be sure that whatever loan program you're utilizing um, you're able to actually utilize that on the property that uh, you've acquired. Yep, and in most cases, your tribal trust land, and then the next screen, the individual allotted trust land, you know, that's where the HUD-184 program comes into play and allows you to do financing on those types of land. Um, so, obviously, we know within Indian country, there's different variations of lands. I know there's allotted, there's trust, so on and so forth. Um, it's really just a matter of being aware of your situation and figuring out what next steps are as far as, you know, what are my mortgage options and, and so on and so forth. So that's why this is in here. And then fee simple means there's just no restrictions on ownership of it. Um, so you can sell, rent, you know, leave the land to your children, pay property taxes to the state, country, uh, county government, and you do not need a lease to use the land, so collateral for a mortgage. Um, basically, it's land with no restrictions, basically. That's really what this is. And um, the 184 works for this. Yep. So the 184 well. program can be financed using, you know, fee simple properties. So same thing, that low down payment, that low monthly PMI. All right, then just Hawaiian homelands, federal government set aside Hawaiian homelands, approximately 200,000 acres of land to be held in trust for homesteading by native Hawaiians. And with that, I know I mentioned on a previous slide, the 184A. Eric, I don't know if there's anything you want to mention on that. The big thing with that is you have to be a native Hawaiian in order to use the program. Um, and it has to be on that native Hawaiian um, land. And that whole process goes through the division or department of Hawaiian homelands. Um, so there's a specific process of going through that. Um, but as far as the mortgage program goes, it's very similar to your 184 program. Um, there's just different processes that go into play because we're working with, instead of the BIA, we're working with the Department of Hawaiian Homelands. Um, but very similar, similar type of mortgage program, same down payment, the 2.25%. All right, 
so these last few slides, I literally just have a few. When you're ready, these are the documents that you're going to need. Your ID, social security card, proof of employment, proof of income, tax documents, place of residence, bank account statements, purchase agreements, and home site documents. Um, Eric, did you want to elaborate on anything here? Um, I think a couple screens further down, it kind of talks about, you know, when you're ready to pre-qualify, you know, these are the items. But yeah, you're right. I mean, those are mostly the things. I would, the one thing that doesn't really, we don't talk about here, and, and this comes up a, a lot more than, than we think, is taxes. Make sure that if you're helping somebody um, apply for a mortgage, one of the questions you want to ask is, have you filed your income taxes for the last two years? Um, that's huge. We got to make sure that they filed their taxes for the last two years, um, because what will happen is we have to get what's called tax transcripts, um, and that's going to show what they actually filed for those last two years. So that's one thing that's not on here, but I guess it does say tax documents on that screen. But yes, last two years tax tax returns are important. <clears throat> Beautiful. All right, then with this, I just wanted to mention uh, key players here. The Native Learning Center worked with a um, realtor and real estate agent, Marie Bonville, and she did a podcast episode with us, which you can find on our Hobo Thing, a podcast. But basically, we go through the episode talking about the people that you're going to come across in your process. So, you know, your mortgage broker slash lender, they're going to work with multiple loans and banks. Um, and they usually cost more, usually 1% of the total cost of the loan. The bank loan officer works for the bank and they may not have all the available options on different types of loans. So that's something to keep in mind. Then we have real estate agent who provides you with home ownership 101 processes. Typically they're going to or hopefully they should be able to answer questions like uh, do you work with first time home buyers? Are you familiar with areas and school districts? What's your availability? All of you know that and then a realtor is essentially an association it's a trademark term and they are typically held to higher standards of ethical practices um then you have your inspector who's working to ensure that the home is structurally sound and can provide uh, they typically can provide a sample report and uh, they also create a um more elaborate report because they're checking literally like everything um just make sure that when you're dealing with inspectors, you have a really good one. <laughs> and um, keep in mind that inspections can cost anywhere between three to $500. I'm not sure if it's gone up. I'm sure it has with inflation and everything. But if one house doesn't work out, be aware that you might have to shovel out another three to $500 for the next house that you settle on to do an inspection. So, and that's like an upfront cost that you end up having. So please keep all of that in mind as you're moving through this process. Then we have an appraiser and the appraisal is meant to protect the bank. Essentially, they don't they want to make sure that they're not paying more house than the house is actually appraised at. And then we have underwriters where there's really no emotional ties to the buyer and they look through finances pretty thoroughly to decide um, whether you qualify. Um, but Eric, did you have anything else you wanted to add here? I would just say on the appraisal side of things, I mean, we're seeing appraisal costs come in, you know, in some areas quite a bit higher than in the past. Um, some of it, unfortunately, I don't like 
seeing this or hearing this, but some of it is due to location. Uh, we have some where there's just no appraisers close to some of these reservations um, and they're having to go out and they're and the cost for these appraisals are, are jumping up quite a bit. Um, but I, I am seeing appraisal costs coming higher lately. Okay. Well, there you go, folks. <laughs> um, I'm trying to see. Keep in mind that a, this industry is very referral based. Um, so a lot of the time you're going to work with people who have worked with people. Make sure that they are trusted individuals, though. We don't need any. Um, how do I say this? We just want to be safe. We want to keep our members safe and we want to make sure that we're servicing the best way possible. OK, um, more information on real estate agents. Um, I already kind of talked about them. Um, Pre-qualifying, we've mentioned this, I think, like 100 times now throughout this session. But we certainly recommend that before looking for homes, speaking with realtors and working with others to go and get pre-qualified. Do not sign a purchase contract beforehand. And Eric, can you elaborate on that? I think that's I think that's a big thing. I and mean, we we have seen this in the past where someone signed a contract before, you know, we pre-qualified them and, and maybe they were thinking they had good income um, or they, they didn't have any issues with credit. But when we ran their, their debt to income, um, adding that mortgage payment based on that purchase price of that house, they just didn't qualify that the payment was too high. So it's very, it's, it's crucial. Let's make sure you get pre-qualified first. Um, just make sure you have that all in place before you know, signing any purchase contract. Beautiful. Um, and just some, I thought, fun tips from real life home buyers. I bothered all of my friends and I decided, or all of them that own houses, and I decided to ask them what are some real life tips that you know people should know. I a lot of the responses that I received were to take your time, do not rush the process, um, do your inspections, absolutely do your inspections, and and again take your time doing your inspections. And then I thought this one was really cool, um, but you can buy a fourplex with a regular residential mortgage loan product as long as you occupy one of the units. And this purchase would be considered a single family home purchase and not an investment purchase. An investment purchase would come with more expensive closing costs and require a much larger down payment as well as much higher interest rates. So I plan to purchase or build well, this individual is saying that they plan to purchase or build a fourplex themselves, live in one unit, rent out the other three units for rental income to pay the mortgage. That basically means that this person can live in their home for free. That's quite incredible. And Eric did mention that when the 184 program, um, we can go up to fourplexes. Is that correct, Eric? Yep, that's correct. And we've had several tribes out there where we've done financing for them and they're doing exactly that there. They're either building fourplexes or they're buying fourplexes and you know renting those units out. Beautiful. All right. Um. Again, advice for renters being priced out of home buying because I noticed a lot of this was going on, um, in Florida. Um. So with that being said, patience is key. Give yourself a break. Strengthen your finances in the meantime. Budget like a homeowner. So basically use a mortgage calculator and save as if you are buying a home pretty much um, and avoid optional expense expenses. 
reevaluate your wants and needs and be realistic. Look at what's going on with the market, like evaluate what kind of home, what type of home, how many bedrooms, all of that. Um, really think about what you're looking for in a home and adjust your filters. Um, and then, of course, keep in touch with your agent and lender. Eric, yeah, anything? Go ahead. Yeah, the, the big thing on that is, you know, when we send out a pre-qualification letter, there's a, a date on that, you know, maybe it's good for 60 days. We don't want people to hurry up and rush. This isn't about rushing to buy a house. Um, we would just want to relook at things and not even necessarily re-pull another credit report. But, you know, if 60 days has passed and you still haven't found that, um, that home yet that you want to purchase, let's just talk again. Let's make sure that you haven't acquired any new debts, um, the debts that you have um, from previous that we looked at. You've been making those on time. You're continuing to save money. Income-wise hasn't changed. If, if none of that has changed in the last 60 days, then no need to rush on things. Um, we'll just relook at it again another 60 days. Beautiful. All right, foreclosure, because it happens. <laughs> um, why am I providing you with this information? Because life happens, essentially. Things happen, accidents, loss of a job, forbid death, life happens, essentially. As natives and humans, we need to take care of what's ours, I think, and we need to be made aware of what happens when uh, foreclosures occur, okay? And I'm not sharing this information to scare any of you by no means. I'm just sharing to inform you and make you more knowledgeable. Um, how many times have we felt that we've been left out of the conversation or the table? I'm here to kind of bring that conversation to light, bring you, you know, invite you to the table and make you aware um, that foreclosure is possible if we're not making payments, if we're not making smart financial decisions. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't want that to happen. We don't want to lose our homes. So, um, uh, anything else you want to add on foreclosure, um, Eric? You know, the big thing on foreclosures under the 184 program is that the program has said that if you've had a HUD 184 loan um, and it went into foreclosure um, and you want to apply for another 184 loan down the road, um, they wouldn't allow you to reapply for another 184 loan under the, you know, since you had a foreclosure. So, and one thing I'll elaborate on around the 184, um, you can use that program over and over again. It just has to be used for your primary residence. So just wanted to throw that out there too. Great. Um, this basically brings us to the end of today's presentation. Um, these are just some resources I wanted to empower y'all with, some books, some websites, just ways to go ahead and do your research. Again, more resources and um, questions, anyone? <laughs> that was a lot of information, so thank you. Yeah, you know, honestly, you could probably go on another maybe 45 minutes or so. I mean, there's just so much information when it comes to buying a house, so. Definitely. Condensing um, two I'm hours. Gonna, yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> if I overwhelmed any of you, I'm very sorry. <laughs> um, that was just a lot of information to try and uh, squeeze in, but I think we did it for the most part. Now, what I would love for all of you to do is to just take a moment and complete our survey. 
it lets me know how I, I can improve, how we can make these sessions more informative or you know, anything along those lines. I do see some questions, so I'm not ignoring you. Just give me one second. Oh, 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 hold on one second. I'm so glitching so hard. What is what is with technology? <laughs> it is not my friend today. Um. Okay, let's try this again. Pasted like a hundred times. Um, yes. Okay, so to answer some of these questions that are in here. Okay, perfect, Don. I will do as much research as I possibly can to find that answer for you. Um Rachel asks, are you able to buy a home that went into foreclosure under the 184 loan? Yes, and that and that would be yes. Uh, you just have to understand that you're buying it as is. Um, and so the program is going to require that um, the utilities are all turned on, power's on, you know, everything's on, water, um, so that um, as the appraiser comes in and checks that property, um, they can comment that all the utilities were on and everything was in good working condition. But yes, the program does allow that. Um, what slide were you wanting to look at? The individual who asked. This one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Great. Okay. Um, I mean, are there any questions? Is there anything else we can answer, help you all out with? Um, yes, I will definitely provide all the resources and the information in an email. Yes, I will. Um, I think I have to send it in two emails. I will say that because this PowerPoint presentation is pretty large with all the images and everything, but you will get it. Um, anything else that I can help you all with? I'm here. First, I really appreciate you uh, allowing me to, to be a part of this. Hopefully it helped everybody. Absolutely. No, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time to be oh, here. Absolutely. Okay. Rachel asks, what about programs that buy the home of your choice for you? And then essentially you pay them back instead of going through a bank. Um, for instance, there's one in MO called Rockberry Homes that does that. Is this a good option or are there better options, uh, perhaps others? You know, I guess there would be a lot of questions I would have if going into something like that. What are the terms of it? Um, are you locked in, you know, for a certain time frame? Yeah, and you buy it, pay them back instead of going through a bank. Yeah, I guess I've not heard of you know, of that type of program before. I, I'm not saying it wouldn't be a bad thing. I think you just got to ask the questions, you know, how long a term is this? Um, is there a, a penalty for, you know, 
paying extra. Um, I'm just not sure much about that. Oh, okay. Oh, I have a short YouTube video that I think answers some of those. I would, Rachel, in my eyes, I would, I agree with Eric 100%. I would just do more research. Find any and all information you can about that because at the end of the day, you want to, you know, remain safe. Because if you're not going through a bank, um, I mean, again, like Eric said, it's not a bad thing. I think it's just, it's really important to look at all the details involved. Oh, you do? Thank you for doing the survey. And thank you for your patience as we got through all the technical issues and um, all of the material. I really do appreciate every single one of you. Um, please be as candid as you possibly can on the survey. I don't get better unless I know what I need to get better at. So I really hope you all enjoyed it. Thanks, everybody. Yes, thank you. And again, thank you so much, Eric. <laughs> Absolutely.